Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Only one more day to talk about the election. Are we all battle-wardened from this election? Can't we talk about the Cavs? They're 8-1, and one, and they beat LeBron James. How about that? It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnson, and back from her week off, Layla Tassi. <laughs> Welcome Thanks. back, Layla. <clears throat> As I was telling you guys before the podcast, I spent the week potty training my toddler. So we're, we're calling it a success. Went well. And uh, we'll see how we continue this week. <laughs> when things get back to normal and work <laughs> schedules and things. <laughs> All right. I think we're together today. I think we're together tomorrow. And then the rest of the week, it's going to be a mess. And there will be no podcast on Friday because too many of us will not be around. Let's get started with the politics. How did candidates for Ohio's big contest, the race for the Senate, spend the final weekend of the campaign? Lisa, you get this one. Yeah, they were barnstorming across Ohio over the last few days as the election looms tomorrow. So for J.D. Vance, he was actually hanging with his fellow Republican candidates in Ohio. The, a bunch of them took a bus tour Thursday and Friday. Governor DeWine and I think the Attorney General and the Auditor and the Secretary of State were along. He also scheduled some last-minute events Saturday in Central Ohio with Senator Josh Hawley, the uh, Republican from Missouri, who Vance says he wants to emulate Josh Hawley if he's to be elected, which is... Hmm, oh, yeah. lovely. <laughs> and he said in his speeches, he's saying that this race is a referendum against President Joe Biden. And of course, he's hitting the GOP talking points of inflation and public disorder, whatever that means. And he also um, went to a fraternal order of Eagles Lodge in Lima. And also they had rallies yesterday. So J.D. Vance was in Akron and Tim Ryan was in Cleveland yesterday. So for Tim Ryan, he really didn't hang with his fellow Democrats. He did not attend a set of events that was held by gubernatorial hopeful Nan Whaley that featured uh, U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown. He was at a Friday rally in Cincinnati, a Saturday rally in Columbus, and he met with each city's Democratic mayor there. Uh, this rally was hosted by U.S. Representative Joyce Beatty at, at a black church, and it was called Souls to the Polls. And Ryan, you know, now the pollsters are saying that Vance has the edge in this race, where Ryan has had it for most of it. And Ryan said, you know, pollsters were going to have egg on their face because their modeling is off again. We have no idea, but at least tomorrow we'll come to a close on this thing. It's what's odd about the the way the country is now is the closer we get to election day, the more the fever gets. Mm -hmm. And so the hate speech really comes out from both sides. And, you know, Laura and I were talking last week. People are kind of fed up with it. And Laura suspects that's why we're seeing big, gigantic, inflatable Santa Clauses on front lawns already is people are trying to glom onto something that gives them 
comfort. Laura's written a column about this that'll be running soon. I'll just be glad when it's over. However it ends, the, the, the madness has got to end, right? Right. And, you know, and the ads, thank goodness. You know, I've taken to muting the ads because it's like wall-to-wall ads during the six o'clock news. So I just, I just mute it. I can't even look at it anymore. Yeah, I'm with you. It's today in Ohio. We got to spend a few minutes with the elections chief for Cuyahoga County, who's in the hot seat as he attempts to run a secure election while election deniers across the country try to undermine our faith in elections. What did he have to say? And is he getting any sleep at night? Well, Layla? reporter John Tucker did this this interview with Anthony Perlotti from the Board of Elections. And, and the backdrop, as you said, Chris, is, is all the disinformation that for many has led to the false belief that the presidential election was stolen from Donald Trump and that Joe Biden's election was illegitimate. And Ohio has been spared from those accusations of rigged elections because, of course, Ohio voted for Trump. But Perlotti has reason to be concerned about how those conspiracy theories could affect this week's election. After all, you know, last month, State Auditor Keith Faber at a speaking engagement floated this crazy idea that Cuyahoga County could fall prey to vote manipulation plots during unaccounted for ballot paper that, you know, that ends up in the wrong hands outside of Ohio. And that's a totally unfounded notion. Faber says he was speaking hypothetically, but I mean, come on now, he knew what he was doing. He's sowing the seeds of distrust in the minds of voters. So, so that's what Perlotti is up against. And in his interview with John Tucker, he gave every assurance that the election is going to go off without a hitch and that there's no reason to be concerned about its integrity. He said that as far as the voting machines are concerned, none of the ballot scanners at the polling locations are connected to the internet. None of them have a Wi-Fi modem. There's just one power cord that goes to an outlet. So it's impossible to hack the system from outside it. And they they run logic and accuracy testing in all the equipment before it goes to the field using pre-voted test decks of ballots where they know the results. And they run them through the machine and compare the expected results to the actual results and make sure they match. And they test every single machine and every single oval position for all 975 precincts. This is a process that takes more than a week and a dozen and dozens of employees. So they're ready. They're ready and it's secure. And to answer your question, Chris, about whether he sleeps at night in these stressful, stressful days, Perlotti says, not really. (laughs) He says he's probably going to try to catch up on sleep sometime after election season. When I floated the idea last week that we were doing this story, I had several people write to me and say, he's not in any kind of hot seat. Ohio hasn't, doesn't have any problems. And th- those folks just aren't getting what's going on in the nation where there is a concerted effort to destroy our faith in the elections. It's one of the ways that you really change the kind of government you have by undermining people's faith in institutions. Perlotti, in my mind, has one of the most difficult jobs going. He's, he's trying in the face of this to to show people just how secure it is. And the good news is, is at least in Cuyahoga County, people believe it, right? We did the, the survey, Laura, right, that showed that largely less so with Republicans, but people do trust the system in Ohio. Yeah, more so in Ohio than in the rest of the country. I mean, there are still people that doubt it. And we've seen national surveys that are up to 70% of Republicans think the election was stolen, which seems 
incredibly high to me. But yes, I, I think people, it's like every facet of government, right? You always like your own better than everybody well, else's. Well, I think, I think the outcome of the presidential election in Ohio is really what gave people that sense. I mean, the because it went the direction of the conspiracy theorists, it's uh, they're not going to flag Ohio as one of the cities that they they you know are are seeing a nefarious uh, activity in the at the polls. So, um, so it all has to do with how, if things don't go the way that they want on Tuesday, then they're going to they're going to say that there's been some yeah, rigging. Know, but- that's of course. I mean, that's the Tucker Carlson Fox News mantra, right? If we don't win, it's because it's right. cooked, because it's not possible for us not to win. There's never been a time where that's been the the statement, and that's what that's what does it. That's what authoritarian figures do. I'm telling you, Tucker Carlson and Fox News have done so much damage to to people's faith and in the institutions of this country. That's what that's what this is about. If I keep telling you it's stolen. Eventually, you believe it's stolen. And this idea that if my guy doesn't win, then it's rigged is is ridiculous. I mean, wouldn't it be great if, if the Browns could do that? Every time they lose, it's because it's rigged. They're the better team. I mean, it's, it's a ridiculous pr- premise, but it's working. A whole lot of people believe it. We'll have to see what happens tomorrow. It's today in Ohio. Reporter Laura Hancock attempted to handicap what the legislature might do with abortion in its lame duck session after Election Day. Will they ban abortion outright? Laura, what does she say? Well, Laura gives four scenarios for lame duck. This is this long, action-packed amount of days between the November election and the end of the year. That's when the two-year legislative session ends. Many lawmakers leave office, and anything that's not passed dies, basically, and you'll have to start over all again. So a lot of lawmakers who oppose abortion are really eager to get it outlawed in nearly every case. They've been talking about this since Roe versus Wade was overturned in June. And they talked about trigger bills. Those are still in the legislature. They haven't been acted on, really. They hinged on that Roe versus Wade getting struck down. And that creates the crime of criminal abortion, expands the crime of abortion manslaughter, and has no exceptions for rape and incest. Matt Hoffman says he doesn't anticipate there's enough time to pass a new law outlawing abortion during lame duck. There are five days scheduled in both the Ohio House and Senate. But you, the leaders can schedule additional days anytime they want to do any kind of work necessary. So she lays out these scenarios in which it's possible they could pass a bill. It's possible that they could not. It's possible that they could make it a Christmas tree bill and add it as an amendment onto something completely unrelated, which honestly, that's probably ha- what I think will happen. I don't know. I think with abortion, it would be dangerous to tuck that into another bill just to get it done without a discussion. And Huffman's on the record saying he won't do that, right? I mean, he has been very adamant that we will have a full discussion. Yeah. And that's what they say, that they want people to weigh in. And there's not a lot of time for that to happen. Think about it. So hopefully they'll just say, okay, this is something we want to take up in the new year. But I don't know. I mean, they've been waiting since June. They were really eager before June. So it remains to be seen. Well, and even Mike DeWine is cautioning them that that yes. because of the right of referendum, you are in a risky spot if you go too far and that they ought to do something that 
that may not spark that outrage immediately. Well, and one interesting aspect that Laura has in here is that if this preliminary injunction continues where the heartbeat bill is on hold because of a judge in Cincinnati, then Republicans can just fundraise off the issue, right? They can not do anything, but keep telling everyone we need your, you know, your support in order to outlaw abortion in the future and just use it as a campaign pledge that people give money toward. Yeah, we'll see. It's today in Ohio. Is the election for South Euclid's municipal court judge next week or this week bogus? Is it breaking the rules? Corey Schaefer wrote a fascinating story about this. Lisa, what does it say? Yeah, there's a judge in Rocky River, a municipal court judge, Brian Hagen, who thinks that the election might be illegal. So what happened was, is the longtime judge, Gail Williams Byers, who was very controversial, by the way, resigned in July. So attorney Timothy Sterkel is the only one on the ballot. So he's going to win no matter what happens. So Ohio Supreme Court Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor appointed an interim judge to take Williams Byers' place, but Governor DeWine is the one who appoints the successor. He has not done so to this point. So Judge Hagan says, well, the Ohio Constitution requires elections to be held in the next year when Byers' term expires, because her term expires next year. And he says, Article 13, Section 4 of the Constitution says, a vacancy shall be filled by governor's appointment. So he thinks that DeWine is required to appoint somebody before an election take place for an office which is vacant. And those are the words that are important for the office which is vacant. So DeWine Flack, Dan Tierney says, well, the appointment is under review. That's all they would say about it. But Haig is, is concerned that there will be legal challenges to, you know, if, if Sterkel will be elected, you know, that there might be legal challenges to, you know, any of the rulings that he makes. He also thinks that it circumvents the governor's appointment powers. So uh, the Board of Elections Director Anthony Perlotti says it's not an issue they're pursuing in Cuyahoga County. They cannot remove anything from the ballot unless there's a formal challenge from someone withstanding in the matter. So Parlotti says we're proceeding. He hasn't even received a complaint or a court order to remove this race from the ballot. Secretary of State Frank LaRose's office has no, he says they have no authority to take action and it should be resolved at the local level. And if it isn't, he'll step in. Well, I guess the easiest thing would be for DeWine to appoint the guy who's on the ballot. Then he's both elected and appointed and there's no problem. So maybe that's what the governor will do. That would be the wise move, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of appointing somebody else after this guy's elected. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that breaks down. I mean, it does seem like the law is pretty clear that this should be a government appointment and that the election should be next year because it's supposed to be in the off year. So it's kind of strange that this is proceeding as it is. It is. And I think that there is room for malfeasance there. You know, you could really kind of game the system with that. Yeah, well, if you got a ticket in that city, <laughs> you might take full advantage of this to try and not have to get points on your license. It's today in Ohio. What does our renowned architecture critic Steve Litt think of Metro Health's new hospital, the Glick Center? It had its ribbon cutting over the weekend. Yeah, Layla. Glick officially opened on Saturday, and the 11-story building features public spaces that are really easy to navigate, flooded with daylight and filled with art. It has state-of-the-art patient rooms with floor-to-ceiling windows and flexible amenities and layouts for patients and caregivers. Steve seems to love it, and he is especially pleased by the fact that this 
gleaming new building and the rest of the billion dollar transformation of the campus is, you know, Metro Health CEO Akram Boutros's way of delivering on his promise to create a hospital within a park. From from an architectural viewpoint, Steve applauded the the shape of the building. It's this long, slender slab that tapers at both ends to make the building seem less bulky and less overbearing than it might otherwise have been. And he says it, it looks friendlier and more harmonious in the neighborhood than than it could have been. But more importantly, you know, Steve says is is what the transformation is doing for the community, which has been really hurt by disinvestment over the years. Metro Health plans to create a 12-acre park between Scranton Road and West 25th Street, which is now just a tattered commercial corridor, and that would be the new front yard of the campus. The health system is also planning um, and, and building three new affordable housing complexes at the edges of the campus. And those projects are, are really designed to in- ensure against gentrification in in the adjacent neighborhoods. And Steve says all of this just goes a long way toward the hospital redefining its once really standoffish relationship with the surrounding neighborhoods. He, he, Steve does lend his critical eye to some aspects of the design. You know, he says that a courtyard needs to be softened with some landscaping, for example, and exposed pipes are a big eyesore. But overall, you know, it sounds like the building is really lovely and welcoming and, and a step in the direction of making good on the hospital's promises to the community. What do you hear from inside there? Are the people who work there excited? <laughs> well, uh, yes, I have a family member, a close family member who works there. And in the days leading up to this, I've been getting so many text messages about how, you know, he he was just really, uh, really eager to get in the new building because I think the old one is on its very last leg <laughs> with, I mean, really bad. So I, I think a- anything would have been an upgrade to that old tower, but but this sounds exceptional and I'm happy for them. Yeah. And let's face it, as they're building the new one, the, the maintenance of the old one is emergency only. So it deteriorates very oh, yeah. quickly. Uh, <clears throat> so I can imagine people getting into the new space. It's always an exciting, an exciting day. It's today in Ohio. Some people surrounded by deer in our suburban neighborhoods, probably why this is even a crime, but what big poaching investigation did the Ohio Division of Wildlife announce last week? Laura? Seriously, I do not feel like we need to be protecting deer as much as we do in the state, but ODNR has closed one of the state's biggest criminal schemes involving white-tailed deer ever. Convictions of 14 people charged with nearly 122 counts total, spanning four counties, two states, and centered in Gallio at the A&E deer processing. So the state did this investigation. They unveiled a venture between two owners and operators of deer processing business. So they falsely game-checked deer. They created false deer harvest records. They falsified deer tags. They exceeded the hunting limits and stole venison from the customers who brought in the deer for processing, which I could not have told you that many ways to steal with deer. Like, that is a long list. It, it, it is. I get that the Division of Wildlife is run by license fees. And so if you, if you hunt for deer, your hunting license, your the the money you pay for the deer keeps them operating but it seems like we have a massive overpopulation of deer in this state it's so I, I don't know it just seems if there's this much demand for the venison why aren't we opening it up so that there's a bigger hunting season or something i, I mean they're everywhere 
I completely agree with you. And so over the course of two seasons, these people stole almost 2,000 pounds of venison mm. from 280 customers. That's a whole lot of venison. I want to know where they're making how how are they making their money off where, like where's the venison market like <laughs> i don't understand and how is there not That's enough venison question, to go Laura. around i mean come on <laughs> i've got venison walking through like, my backyard right now <laughs> yeah, right. right like i understand it is not safe to hunt deer in my backyard i get that is there a way that we round them all up take them to gallia and apparently they're very efficient at processing them and i always wonder what happens with the culled deer cuz the neighborhoods by you know, oh we give the the venison to the food bank but when I lived in Texas, you could buy venison sausage at the Kroger. I mean, I can't find find venison to save my life. Yeah, I I I don't want anybody taking the deer out of my neighborhood. I still get a big kick out of seeing them walking around here. But I, it does seem like there's a disconnect between the state's regulations and the the need and desire to reduce the deer population. If there's a big demand for venison, there's a big supply. They ought to be meeting each other. It's an interesting case. It's today in Ohio. You don't see this happen very often, but a police officer is going to jail for a crime committed in the line of duty. Lisa, who is it? What did he do? And how long will he be behind bars? Yeah, this is a 20-year veteran Cleveland police officer, Christopher Graham. He was convicted of misdemeanor assault in relation to a 2017 incident. This uh, conviction was last month. And then Judge Jasmine Torres Lugo suspended Graham's 180-day jail term. So instead, he'll spend one week in jail. He'll be on probation for three years, but he is going to appeal. I, I don't know what the grounds of the appeal are, but the sentence has stayed until the end of this month, so they've got a little time. So city officials accused Graham of choking and slamming an 18-year-old woman to the ground and then lying about it. This was uh, at a Jefferson gas station back in September of 2017. Graham was fired in April of 2021 for excessive force used in this incident, but he has priors. I mean, he was accused in two lawsuits in 2003 and 2005 for abuse of power. They were settled out of court by the city for an unknown amount or settlement. And this woman that he slammed to the ground was arrested and she spent five days in jail, but she was never charged with a crime. Yeah, th this is a case where the police officer clearly crossed the line. And what you rarely see is for a police officer to actually be convicted and held to account. I mean, that's super rare. Uh, and you got to feel for this woman who you know, spent five days in jail, was never charged with the crime, finally seeing some justice happen here. Yeah. And this is a 20 year veteran. And, you know, like I said, he, there were some inklings that he's done this before, but yeah. Okay. It's today in Ohio. Our columnist Brent Larkin had an interview with Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb about his failure to understand Eric Gordon's value to Cleveland education. Layla, I get the feeling that Bibb is doing everything he can to change the, the narrative on his relationship with Gordon because it's really caused him trouble. Everywhere you go mm -hmm. in town, people are wondering whether Bibb is a bad mayor, is not going to live up to his billing, and the Gordon episode is what did it. So... What did he tell Brent and what did Brent think well, of it all? Brent seems kind of dismayed by Bibb's hubris overall. And, and the subtext of the column is, is certainly that 35-year-old Bibb is perhaps in over his head and making some poor decisions, not the least of which was the fact that although 
Bibb met with Eric Gordon more than a dozen times to discuss other issues related to the school. I mean, for the first eight months of Bibb's tenure as mayor, he never had a discussion with Gordon about Gordon's future with the district. And that failure very well could have led to Gordon's decision to resign at the end of the school year. And and Brent cautions that once Gordon leaves, what happens with the schools could very well make or break Justin Bibb's political career. And I think that is very very true. Brent Brent says Bibb's goal in their discussion was to convince Brent that Bibb had nothing to do with Gordon's decision to leave and, and to praise Gordon's 11 years of leadership. And although Brent says that Bibb's concern and care for the schools and its kids is, is sincere, he's not totally sold on, on that assertion that he was undecided about Gordon remaining as the school's CEO. You know, Bibb told him, I, I wanted to do my due diligence because this choice is important. I had to be thoughtful. I, I needed time to judge the, the first school year. And he said, I'm within my right as the chief executive officer of the city to make my decisions on my timeline. And to that, Brent said, you know, okay, but we're free to draw our own conclusions about whether that approach led to Gordon's departure. And Brent says that the right thing for Bibb to do now is to really swallow his pride and ask Gordon to reconsider his his taking leave for the for the good of the district. The the troubling thing in that column for me was as soon as Bibb sat down with Brent the first words or among the first words out of his mouth were, hey, I was elected to be right, a change right. agent. So, you know, I'm a change. In, instead of coming in, I, I think you're right about the, the, the hubris. Instead of coming in saying, man, this is a can of worms. I screwed up. I should have been talking to Eric about his future more. I'm not sure I want to keep him, but how can I even make that decision if I haven't talked to him? Instead, his the first words out of his mouth are, hey, I'm, I'm yeah. the big dog now. You know, I'm making the call. That's not good. I mean, and look, I know all over town, this people were wondering about Bib. He had had some gaffes. He had had some screw ups, but they were giving him the benefit of the doubt. The Gordon decision shocked people. And now a whole bunch of people are looking at Bib as, is he a weak mayor? Is the young guy who got in with no city hall experience, has it gone to his head? Is he not talking to people who know better and is he really just saying my way or the highway? What comes across in that column is, yeah, that's who he is. And if that's true, he's in for a very long yeah, next three I years. I agree. I agree. I mean, Gordon's departure will be calamitous for the district. And, and, and you yeah, know, he, Brent talked to a lot of people, including, you know, sounded like some, ed, you know, a lot of educators who didn't want to be named because of, you know, obviously their proximity to this. But they all supported you know, Gordon's continued tenure with the schools. People are very forgiving when, when a leader stands up and says, Hey, look, I made a mistake. If he did that, if he came out and said, look, I, I, I made a mistake. I should have been talking to Eric Gordon. I really do want him to stay. Uh, so I'm talking to him about what we can do. People would say, okay, we'll give you another chance. If, if he continues down this line of, I'm, I'm, I'm in charge, you know, do what I tell you. And I, I mentioned last week, people can't get meetings mm -hmm. with the city hall. They're calling and they're trying to get in to talk and they're like, yeah, yeah, we don't, we don't want to talk to you. And <laughs> that's not the way to, to move forward. So interesting this is a good piece by Brent. Check it out. It's on cleveland.com. Before we talk about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony, I want to mention we talked last week about in, in very scornful terms about how 
the induction ceremony was not going to be in Cleveland every other year, as had been promised. That was based on the Rock Cal Foundation president interview with the magazine in which he said it's going to be a three city rotation. If you say it's going to be a three city rotation, the clear implication is every three years. As soon as all that broke, the Rock Hall got in touch with us and, and Trey Smith and said, no, 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 it's going to be in Cleveland every other year and then in the other cities and off years. It's the first time, the first mm-hmm. time the Rock Hall has confirmed that in forever. So it is going to be here every year, every other year. That's a good thing. Although not now. Apparently it will not be here next year. It's going to be 2024, it sounds like. Anyway, what were the highlights of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony in Los Angeles? I'm not sure if this is a Laura or Lisa question. Who's got this one? Okay. (laughs) So this was a five plus hour ceremony that Troy Smith watched and wrote all sorts of stories about for us for cleveland.com and was live tweeting. So this is a loaded class. We got Eminem and Dolly Parton, who were the end caps of the evening. Carly Simon, Pat Benatar, Duran Duran, the Eurythmics, and Lionel Richie. And then Judas Priest, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, Harry Belafonte, Elizabeth Cotton, Grubman, Jimmy Iovine and Sylvia Robinson got the side categories and awards, but it was a big night all around. The guest list included Bruce Springsteen and John Mellencamp, who did a duet to Jerry Lee Lewis along with Zach Brown Band. Olivia Rodrigo was singing You're So Vain, which I was watching on YouTube with my daughter who loves Olivia Rodrigo. And she's like, I've never heard this song before. <laughs> um, Alanis Morissette, The Edge, Cheryl Crow, Marin Morris. Just the list was huge. Um, and it just sounded like everybody was having a really good time honoring the inductees. Well, and for the Eurythmics to be back on stage together again for what, the first time in 10 years, that was that's a pretty big moment. Yeah, and and Dolly and- Parton wrote her own song. To- <laughs> it's yeah. her first rock song, right? <laughs> And there's the Cleveland connection mystery. is uh, Pat Benatar's partner. I right? on, you're going to have to talk about that because you know way. Oh more yeah, about Neil Giraldo, her her guitarist husband. You mean? He's from here, right? I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. There's a yeah. So we had, even though the ceremony wasn't in Cleveland, we had a Cleveland connection. People will be able to watch. I hope an abbreviated version, not the five hour version. <laughs> you just sit down on your couch, guys. You're going to be here a while. It's on HBO on, what, the 19th? Two weeks, yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, people can check it out then. I guess it'll go back to New York next year because if it's not coming here, uh, we'll have to see. It's today in Ohio. That's it for a Monday. Tomorrow, we'll be having our final talk heading into Election Day. Wednesday, we'll be talking about the results. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thank you for listening. 